Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories, and this is Casey McIntosh, one of your hosts, also joined today by Julie Henningsen and our special guest today, my husband, Matt Henningsen. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. I'm surprised you're gutsy enough to come on here and be in the hot seat. Yeah, I took a little arm twisting. So Matt's going to share with us today his survival story, which is really probably more of a cautionary tale. <laughs> you told me this story before. I'm not sure if I heard the whole entire thing from Matt before, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, we talked a little bit about the story before we jumped on today, and there's actually some things about it that even I didn't know. So we'll hear the full version. I think that's really impressive, today. let me just say, because what story from your spouse have you not heard every single last detail about like a hundred billion times? Exactly. <laughs> that's I impressive. Was shocked. I was shocked that there were details that that's I didn't awesome. already know. So my teaser for today's story is that the story ends with Matt in the hospital in Alaska, going into surgery, about to possibly lose his hand after being rapidly evacuated from the Alaskan bush. So that's where our story ends. But Matt, tell us. Well, so how far back do you want to go? Why don't you start by telling us how you ended up in Alaska in the first place? Yeah, sure. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, during my youthful campaign, I was a big game hunting guide in both Montana and Alaska. And I worked for a master guide who was stationed just north of Anchorage, but our lodge, our hunting camp was about 123 miles west, northwest of Anchorage in a sub range of the Alaska range called the Terracotta Range. And there I, for a few seasons, I, I would travel up from Montana and I would spend the summer and early fall months not only guiding salmon fishermen, but then guiding big game hunts, doll sheep, caribou, moose. So this episode takes place in the fall of 2001. We had finished up a season of king salmon fishing on the Malchatna River and we went into the month of August, which is the time when you hunt doll sheep. And so I was flown from the fishing lodge or fishing camp, if you will, out to our remote Alaska lodge where my job was to round up the horses and get shoes on them and prepare for the season. So the season kind of winded on. That's, you can see <laughs> that. It wound on. Um, and I found myself on a grizzly bear hunt. A client had flown in. And this particular client, a former, I believe he was a former professional football player. He was going after an Alaska grizzly. And if I can interrupt here, the first time I heard this story from Matt, which was before we were married, the main thing I thought was, oh my gosh, I can't believe you would hunt grizzly bear. I can't believe you would take down a grizz. But then Matt explained to me a few things about grizzly bear hunting in Alaska, which I didn't know. I was a little uninformed. There's some background to what, or there's more to that story. Maybe you can digress away. Digress so, digressing. 
Alaskan grizzly bears are really no different than the grizzly bears found in the lower 48 states. Um, there's one key difference, or actually there's a couple. Number one, there are no shortages of, or there's no shortage of grizzly bears in Alaska. They're very common, which is not the case here in the lower 48 states. I know you've talked about grizzly bears in Yellowstone and Glacier. They're in no way endangered. As a matter of fact, in many instances, they're, they can be a nuisance. One of the things that's interesting about grizzlies in Alaska is really they can be divided into two subspecies. There's the interior grizzly, and then there's what's called the Alaskan brown bear. And really the only difference is, is that the Alaskan brown bear generally lives within 100 uh, miles of the coast and whose primary diet is salmon. This has allowed these populations that are geographically isolated to kind of develop attributes that differ from one another. The interior Alaska grizzly um, is more of a scavenger. They're smaller in size. They're actually known to be among guides uh, to be a little bit more tenacious. They're scrappers. Uh, the Alaskan brown bear, they're happy to eat their fish. They get really big. That's why hunters go after them. In this case, it's not exactly clear if we were hunting an Alaska brown bear or an interior grizzly. We're right on the line. We're about 100 miles outside of Anchorage, away from the coast. But this bear was definitely eating salmon. So how I came uh, to find myself on this hunt is the outfitter that I worked for had a full-time bush pilot by the name of Terry. Excellent cub driver, could land anywhere on floats, wheels, just the quintessential Alaska bush pilot. And in his daily work, as he would travel back and forth from Anchorage to the lodge or other camps to resupply the guides, he took inventory of the game that he saw from the air. And in this particular instance, he had been watching this very large male grizzly bear that had been feeding on spawning salmon on an obscure side channel of one of the major rivers up there, kind of near the Alaska village of Squinton, to give you some reference. And so the plan was, is that Terry was going to drop me off first myself in the super cub on floats. And he landed on a small, what I would call a beaver pond, but really it's, it was just a wet depression in the tundra, maybe a quarter mile away from the river. And so he dropped me off and I set up camp and then my hunter flew in shortly thereafter. Well, Terry had instructed me on exactly how to hunt this bear He'd been in Alaska for many decades, an accomplished guide himself. And what he recommended doing was in the morning when the wind was blowing downstream, that we hike, my client and I, hike down to where this side channel where its confluence is with the main stem of the river. And from there, we would hike up the side channel slowly. And what Terry recommended was, now, let me back up for a second. The vegetation, very dense, right up to the water's edge. Willow, alder. Scratch your face off, brush. You can hardly. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, we really didn't have much choice but to walk up the middle of this side channel. Well, the side channel was very sinuous. It would go 50, 100 yards tops and then make at least a 90 degree turn, if not a little more, off in a different direction. And so as we were walking up this stream, you can only see out in front of you a little bit and you would sneak up to the next corner and look around the next corner, hoping to catch a glimpse of this bear. Well, this was in the fall and the side channel was full of spawning salmon. And most of these salmon had been spawned out, meaning they're coming to the end of their life. They've made their spawning beds. And so they're almost like zombie fish, the walking dead of fish with like fins and eyeballs falling out of them as they're literally dying. Well, so as we're going up this side channel, you can hear these splashes coming around, you know, as you're about to go around the corner, only to find out that it's just another pool of spawning fish flopping around. Well, Terry had told me that it would be unmistakable when I knew a bear was around the corner because it would sound like a Volkswagen beetle being thrown into the water. Well, having not have heard this yet, I started, you know, I would doubt myself when I'd hear the noise, but eventually it happened. We came around a corner right as we heard this huge <laughs> of water to see this giant bear in the middle of the side channel. And just as we were about to make a move, the bear would walk around the next corner. So we followed. We get up to the next corner just to see the bear going around the next corner. And this happened again and again. Till finally we came around a corner and we didn't see the bear. And as we started to walk up this last reach to get to the next corner, the bear had actually caught a fish, had gone into the brush adjacent to us, didn't know we were there, and came out right in front of us. 20, 30 yards, maybe. I could have picked up a rock and thrown it at this bear. Well, my hunter immediately followed my directions as he went to dispatch this bear with a clean ethical shot. He did his best, but when the bear was hit, the bear jumped into the brush on the opposing bank. And so now we have this dilemma. We have a bear, which by the way, bears, because of their low metabolism and low heart rate, they don't die right away, oftentimes, unless you, unless it's you know, a shot to the spine or the skull, something like that. So I knew that this was becoming a very tense, potentially dangerous situation as there's a bear in the brush that knew, knew we were coming, but we didn't know exactly where he was. To make things worse, it had been drizzling all day. And so everything was wet. So any blood that may have been left on any of the branches or leaves was quickly washed away. Fortunately, the mist was so fine that it created these little bitty water droplets on every plant surface in the tundra. And it was almost as if somebody had taken a giant spotlight to light the way because every surface that this bear had touched was devoid of the water droplets, which was in stark contrast to the rest of the surroundings. So we ventured in after this bear. So did you have to cross that river? Yeah, but the river was really, it was only knee deep at most. And so 
we were still on the side channel and we were away from the main stem. So we were actually venturing more into the brush than towards the main river, if that makes sense. So no, we didn't have to cross any really deep water. But as soon as we got off the stream, we were entangled in just this jungle of growth that grabbed at our backpacks and our rifles, and we were just soaked all the way through. And it was really, it was so arduous traveling that my hunter, he couldn't keep up. And we got to a point where I could smell the bear. I could smell the bear. It's this very musky body odor. And I knew we were closed. And then I could hear the bear. The bear was rustling in the brush. And I could tell he was moving out away from us. And finally, I just made the decision, hey, I've got to put an end to this. My hunter can't keep up. This bear's out in front of me. So I decide that I'm going in and charging this bear. Couldn't see him. Yeah, Julie's shaking her head. I didn't know what else to do other than I wanted to bring this hunt to a conclusion. And so with a round hot in the chamber, I just charged in this trail into this big, thick patch of alders. And there I caught the bear in the alders, just like in the movies. He got up. He was about to make a charge at me, really. I had cornered him. And to put it bluntly, I quickly dispatched the bear, emptying my rifle, screaming, hollering. My hunter, hearing the noise I was making, was concerned that, you know, I would, was being attacked. He charges in, he mustered the energy, and there the bear lay, deceased. The hunt was at an end. So, you might be thinking, well, gosh, if the bear's deceased, <laughs> when does the survival story start? Unlikely start to. Right. Although you could survival. argue that the fight for survival started when Matt started looking for the bear to begin with. I was just thinking about how anxiety provoking that must have been walking up that part of the river, just thinking, oh, is it around the next corner? I mean, just thinking about it makes my heart rate increase right now. That's got to be really thrilling and adrenaline provoking. Well, it certainly was. And that's part of the reason why I chose that profession early on in my adulthood. It was high adventure in the wilderness. And really, there's nothing more exciting than chasing dangerous game. I mean, this is on par with hunting African lion. So Cape Buffalo, really, it's looking back at, looking back on it now, you know, and I don't have the desire to do those things now. I kind of got it out of my system. You were a young man at that time. What, how old were you approximately? Well, it was 20 years ago. So I was in my early 20s. I recall at one point you told me that the biggest threat to baby grizzly bears in that environment is adult male grizzly bears that they commonly kill their young. Is yeah, that true? Yeah, it's true. And so maybe just to back up a little bit here, hunting bears, I also, the same outfitter, we would hunt grizzly bears on Kodiak Island, which everybody's heard of the Kodiak brown bear. It's the largest brown bear in the world, although there's 
some debate as it pertains to bears on Akka, Russia, and the Alaska Peninsula. But nevertheless, this is, if you're a bear hunter and you want to understand bears, and I would even go on to say that we would oftentimes have camp assistants or packers that were wildlife biologists that would work these seasons with us just so they could be with bears and observe them. And so the largest concentration of bears, grizzly bears in the world is on Kodiak Island. And one of the things, there's a couple of things. Number one, they've always been a hunted population of animals. So they have evolved in concert with humans being hunted and they being the apex predator themselves. And so adult male grizzly bears are responsible. And this is a statistic that's 20 years old. Um, but they're responsible for up to 40% of cub crop mortality annually. The male bears will kill new cubs to bring the sow into heat so that they can breed. So part of this management philosophy on the wildlife refuge in Kodiak was if you hunt adult male bears and guides are trained to judge old adult male bears, you're actually doing more to promote the population. So just a little side note there. About, That's interesting. About bear so is that considered a good or a bad thing? Because the other way, it seems like there's a lot of them. Well, hey, listen, at the end of the day, I would defer to our wildlife agencies. They know what they're doing. The biologists and the wardens in the state's they really do a good job of managing wildlife. And so whether you're somebody that is what we call, you know, a consumptive participant or a wildlife observer, they're, you know, wildlife has been entrusted to the public and it's managed for, I guess, multi-use. And so hunters really do play an important part of wildlife management and to kind of group all wildlife management into one bucket, for example, how grizzly bears are and need to be managed in the Yellowstone ecosystem are really quite different than the Alaska ecosystem. So if it's good or bad, you know, I, I certainly understand that it's the last thing some people would want to do is herd a bear. Their majestic creatures are beautiful. It's just a matter of fact that this was a role that I played a long time ago. Are there tags for bear hunting in Alaska? Yeah, so it's regulated. It's 100% regulated. Not only that, but for specifically with regards to Alaska, if you're a non-resident, you're required by law to go with a qualified guide. So you're with an expert in the field that's trained to judge the animal, make sure that the animal is ethically harvested, you know, Alaska is a state where the guide is required by law to back up their hunter. So, for example, when my hunter made this shot, and as soon as he shot this bear, the bear jumped in the brush, I now had a lawful obligation to go after that bear and make sure that that bear didn't suffer any more than it was potentially suffering by being wounded. And that's what I did. That was really my drive beyond some selfish desire to, you know, have some adrenaline high. It was really to do the right thing. Well, maybe that helped 
keep you level-headed in that moment instead of getting whisked away in the excitement of what was going on. You know, it was like, oh, now it was a responsibility versus just something that you were doing for fun. Absolutely. So here we find ourselves with this bear. You had asked about you know, bear tags. So yes, my hunter had his his bear tag. He was contracted with a qualified outfitting service of whom I was employed by. And now the real work begins. Bears are big. And really the next step is to skin out this bear, just like you would read about in books. That's the objective is now we need to take care of this animal, respect this animal, do all the right things. And so we're going to process this bear. And so the task of basically manhandling this four or 500-pound creature in tangled brush and do all the work that was necessary. That's, that was our next objective. And so this is where, I guess, the story starts to take shape. As I'm skinning out this bear, I would grab a piece of the hide and pull it back, and I would lay my blade in between the tissue. You can clearly see where the skin meets the muscle. And I draw my blade right in that seam, and slowly but surely the hide would come away from the animal's carcass. And I had a grip on the edge of the hide, and I was pulling it away. As I made a fist with hide clenched in my fist, and my fist is pointed up towards my face as I'm pulling it down, and I'm going in with the other hand and working my blade on the flesh. And with the tip of my knife, I just barely, barely just nicked my knuckle, my, my pinky knuckle, just on the inside. Didn't really think anything of it. Didn't really, you know, maybe a spot of blood. But I can tell you this, being a guide in Montana and Alaska, I've field dressed many, many animals from Rocky Mountain bull elk to mule deer, to antelope, here in Alaska, doll sheep, caribou, most of the big game animals. And rarely is there a time where I don't nick myself at least once. It just happens. So I nicked my I nicked my hand. We made quick work of, you know, the bear. We got it packed back to camp. The bush plane flies over. We had some hand signals where we could wave the plane in that we had a successful hunt and it was high fives for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's just textbook. I was really proud of the accomplishment. I did exactly what the bush pilot had said, and I had another notch in my belt as a as a young guide. So we get flown back to the lodge. Quickly, I was dispatched on the next hunt. I hadn't even been back to the lodge. 
I don't even know, maybe an hour. My recollection was that somebody, another hunter had flown in. They were waiting for their guy to finish up on their last hunt. And I was just fed right back into the system and I saddled up a couple horses. And now my new hunter in tow were headed up the post river, up to the head of the post river to look for a big Alaska moose. So to be clear, you weren't dispatched the same way the bear was dispatched. <laughs> Correct. Hey, no, thank God. A different kind of dispatch. Yeah, I was. So that, I mean, it was, it was kind of a turn and burn. I get back to camp and I'm ready to head right back out. I repack my gear. I pack up some food. We have horses back at the lodge. And and just to be clear, I mean, we're 150 miles from the nearest road, or 123, actually. And so it, this is early 2000s. GPS was, do you remember the old Garmin GPS 12? It had a compass dial on it, and you could put a waypoint on there with a uh, with and the it would give you the coordinates and basically it, you plot your bearing to or your heading to your next waypoint there's no maps there's no moving this that the other and satellite phones were somewhat unreliable and very expensive so we relied mostly on trust that a bush pilot was going to fly over at a predetermined time and a predetermined location and that we could communicate via hand signals. If you held a pot, you know, like a cooking pot over your head, it means I need more food. If you hold your rifle over your head, it means that you've lost sight of the game and you want to be relocated. In that case, the bush pilot would leave, go circle up at a high altitude. He had Xerox copies, a seven and a half minute map of the general area. He would write something on the map, put it in a white trash bag with a rock. And then he would come back and he would buzz right over your camp and throw that bag out of the super cup. And you would read that note. And then the next day you'd pack up and maybe go 20, 30 miles. Super high tech is what you're saying. Yeah, super high tech. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but back to the story. We're we're headed up the Post River, a full day's ride to an area where moose were known to rut. It was uh, it was coming into September, and the moose were in rut. Well, to make a long story short, we set up camp. We have our place where we're going to glass for moose. This big tundra bowl full of willow and, and other things. And what we're looking for is we're looking for what we would say two pieces of sheetrock just kind of sticking up out of the hillside, you know, miles away. And so when we're glassing, we're looking, we're looking for things that are literally miles away and just spending just relentless amounts of time just looking at a mountainside. You'd think you'd be able to see everything, but really you'd be surprised animals that just blend into the landscape and you just have to sit there and watch. Well, a day or two goes by and uh, we finally spot this moose. And so we go to put a stock on this moose. Long story short, we get right up to this moose. My hunter, again, makes a clean kill this time. It's easy. And now an even bigger job is 
in front of us, which is now field dressing a one-ton animal, a giant Alaska moose. All the fun is over as soon as the trigger's pulled, really. It's a lot of work. And how much of that work are you doing versus your hunter? Do the hunters pitch in on that? They do. Yeah. Most of the time, the hunters are super excited. They're active participants. This is a dream come true for a lot of them. And so, you know, my hunter's in there. He's helping me on this one. That hasn't always been the case. That's a story for another time. But, you know, my hand, though, over these days, two, three, four days, you know, I lose track of time, you know, from when I nicked my hand skinning out that grizzly bear, why it might have been two days before we actually got flown out, right? Because part of the law in Alaska is that the animal needs to leave the field before the hunter. And the reason for that is, is they want to make sure that the animal is taken care of first, and then the hunter flies out. And then a lot of times the guide's the last one to fly out. So in the case of the bear flew back out, then you know, flew out to the front country and then the hunter got picked up and he was taken to the lodge and then the weather goes down and I might've had to sit by myself for a day. And then I get back to camp and then at the full day's ride by horse and we get set up and it's a couple days. So, you know, maybe five days have gone by and hand was killing me, the hand that I nicked. And a big red bump on the back of my knuckle started in the morning. And then maybe by the afternoon, it started to get as big as a baseball. And then the next day I wake up and it's like it had traveled up my pinky finger and it was starting to go up my index finger. The back of my hand was big, round, red, hot, throbbing. Well, you know, I have this moose that I have to take care of. It's not like I can just you know, call in sick. So I just kind of grin and bear it and really not giving it too much thought other than like, yeah, okay, I'm infected, but it'll go away. My body will take care of itself. And so we butcher the moose and then it's, it's a full day's ride back to the lodge. And we have to also do a couple trips to get the moose out. So on my last trip out, I get back to the lodge right as the bush pilot was landing. And I remember it clearly. He, he landed. He's taxiing up to the dock in the float plane. He gets out and he says, Matt, get in the plane now. You're going to Anchorage. Apparently, he could see from 100 yards away my hand. I was in denial but red streaks were starting to go up my arm. My hand looked, looked like I had two Polish sausages for fingers sticking out of a grapefruit, purple grapefruit. It was bad. And so I was immediately shoved into the airplane and flown to Anchorage. Yeah, it was your 20-something-year-old brain that was like, this is fine. I can do this. I've got it. No big deal. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, it's that maybe maybe a little testosterone fueled young man, invincible kind of nothing's gonna stop me. I think also, you know, when you feel like you have this responsibility to someone else, it's your job. You have this mentality of like 
Just put your head down, get it done. Don't complain. So that may have been playing into it too a little bit. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. But what's interesting about this, Casey, is when I got back to camp and I was told to get in the bush plan, it's the last thing I wanted to do. I had the hunter that I didn't want to leave. We were going to go after more game. I felt like I was being you know, taken out of the game, if you will. And I really expected that. I'm like, okay, fly me to Anchorage. I'll get some pills and I'll be back on the mend and back, you know, and I'll be, I'll be back to finish out the season. But by the time I got to Anchorage, things were really escalating quickly. I get to the ER late in the day, early evening. And I remember this ER doc who was young seemed to be, you know, I don't know, maybe she was on her clinical rotation. <laughs> yes. Remember those? <laughs> you love them every minute of it. Very nice, very confident, but basically dismiss this as nothing more than a scratch from a dog or a cat and that, you know, some oral antibiotics would do the trick. Well, interestingly enough, the reason why this bush pilot was so concerned about me is he didn't really say anything, but he noticed my hand when he flew me out from the bear hunt to the lodge. And then he noticed my hand right away when he landed and I was making my last trip in with this moose. What I didn't know is that this bush pilot, what I had was something very specific. It wasn't just some common or obscure infection. It's a very specific infection called speck finger. And it's um, common in bear hunting guides. And in the Native American population in Alaska, it's called seal finger. And it comes from uh, cutting your, get, having an open wound on your hand while you're processing a seal. And what's in common about both these both the seal and the bear being predators have are known to carry this anaerobic bacteria that's associated with eating dead, dying, necrotic, spawned salmon or fish. I there's a correlation there. But in any event, what this turned out to be was an anaerobic bac bacteria, a staph infection to use a very general term. But what made it so dangerous is that because your hand, what I came to learn was that your hand is full of possibly hundreds of little compartments. Is this, is this true? Yeah, there's a lot of structures in their hands and your feet, and each one of those structures has their own lining and their own accessory structures and their own compartments, muscles and tendons and ligaments, especially right over a joint space like your knuckle. There's just a lot going on there. You can only no, swell so much before you end up losing blood supply to some of those areas too. So what's interesting about that, Casey, is so exactly that, right? So you have these spaces in your hand come to learn that there's not a lot of circulation in your hand when it comes to in between those joints and things like that. So fortunately, again, the, this, this bush pilot had speck finger when he was my age from being a bear guide and medicine didn't really know how to treat. And he laid with an open wound 
this necrotic open wound on his hand for months as he tried to get it healed. And it finally did. So he, he was on the lookout for it. And my boss, as well as the Bush pilot, they didn't take this ER doctor's recommendation. Uh, they, took, they knew it was more serious than that. So they made sure that I got into an infectious disease doctor the next day. And in conjunction with a hand surgeon, they came up with a plan to treat this injury that literally come to find out I was hours away from having to have my hand amputated. And you were talking about being this, this testosterone-driven, careless, macho mindset. Well, it quickly devolved into this mindset of resignation. My hand hurt so bad, and I was in so much pain, and the suffering was I wanted it to end so bad. Anybody could have convinced me to cut my hand off. I was ready for them, like, hey, just cut it off. Let's get on with this because it was unbearable. And just to interject from more a medical perspective, I'm sure Casey and I are both thinking the same thing, is if you're hours away from losing your hand, you're hours away from septic shock where this infection goes from your knuckle up your arm to your armpit to your core mm -hmm. to your vital organs and kills you. This is certainly not far from being a life-threatening. Right. Issue. Extremely serious. Yeah, right. So therein lies the next step. I was quickly put on a PICC line, and I forget what that acronym is. Peripheral inserted central catheter. Yeah. So it was rushed into the OR. I think it's a procedure they do in the OR. At least they do it under x-ray where they insert a catheter in the crease of my elbow and it goes directly into the superior vena cava of my heart. And then you carry this external pump that pumps high power antibiotics directly into your heart. And the, uh, the plan was the infectious disease doctor called it, we want to localize the infection and have it declare itself. So with this pick line, the idea is all the soft tissue infection, the red streaks going up my arm into the back of my hand, they had to cure that first and get all the infection out of the soft tissue. And once that's done, those little anaerobic pockets in my hand would wall themselves off and then the infection would declare itself. And this process took 30 days almost. It took... 30 days, almost a month of this pick line before the, and the results were immediate. By morning, the red streaks on the back of my hand were gone. The swelling started to go down. The pressure was relieved. And then it turned around on its head. And then on the palm of my hand, it started to swell up. And my index finger and my pinky fingers ballooned back up. And that's when the surgeon knew it was time to go in after the infection because it had declared itself. And so I was brought into the OR, which was supposed to be you know, a common hand procedure. They make an incision and they're basically going to drain pus out, you know, get rid of the infection. Is that what? Yeah, or debride. I think they'd call it debride. 
Well, as it was described to me, because this procedure ended up taking about three hours, which was a long time to be under the knife for this, but they actually had to go in and go into my tendon sheaths and scrape the tendon sheaths and irrigate it and pull all the junk out. And then it was still wasn't finished. How I was going to heal was from the inside out. And so I had to go into a sterile whirlpool back, my hand, just my hand twice a day for two weeks and let my hand soak in there for a couple hours and it would just draw the infection out and the pus and it was my hand slowly healed from the inside out no stitches or anything but that's the story that's the story of how one careless move can turn into you know a month-long fight to get back on your feet, being inches away from not just losing my hand, but, you know, maybe I don't like to think it was that serious, but really what, let me pose this to you. Years later, I was guiding for a different outfitter near Denali National Park, the Wood River, had a moose hunter. The hunter shot his moose. This time I had a satellite phone calling the bush plane. The bush plane shows up the next day where we get the moose to this little gravel landing strip. The moose goes out, the hunter goes out, and the return flight was imminent and the weather went down. And I sat on a gravel bar for several days. There's nothing I could do. I just had to wait for the weather to improve so that a bush plane could come back in. And how lucky am I that that same thing didn't happen when I got back to the lodge? If there had been a weather event, which is very common for weather to go down three, five, seven days of inclement weather where you can't fly, that's that to me is where it sinks in that how lucky I am. And I take it for granted. It's a distant memory. But as a young person... um. I was ready to give up my hand. Well, also, you're probably emotionally worn down. But I was just thinking about all of those times. Just like you said, the weather could have gone wrong. The infection could have spread more quickly. The bush pilot could have not known enough about that condition. Had they not been there with you in the emergency room, you could have become septic, you know, which also made me think about the importance of speaking up when you were getting medical care if you're not really sure about what's going on or if you doubt the diagnosis to be able to say like, hey, could you maybe consult with someone, you know, just making sure that you don't just walk away because had you, you could have died easily, you know, had they not been with you. It's very true. So, you know, in the scheme of things, I remember being bummed that I had to spend a month in Anchorage convalescing on a my boss's couch watching reruns of the X-Files while (laughs) which that's another story but you know I will say this that you know I still continue to occasionally nick my hand when I'm field dressing an animal but I wear gloves now you know I make sure that I can clean my hands right away and that I really take care of my hands and since that, since those days, Matt has gotten certified through Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, in wilderness first responder, and he he's understands the importance of 
aggressive wound cleaning, wounds of any type in a remote setting, a liter to a liter and a half of good, clean water, sometimes even with a little betadine or povidone iodine in the mix to really flush out contaminants. We always recommend cleaning wounds way more aggressively in remote settings than you would, say, over your kitchen sink. I'm glad you brought that up, Julie, because before we met, I definitely had a different attitude about backcountry safety, backcountry first aid. I adopted this kind of rough-and-tumble attitude that I learned from older guides that, you know, Adults need to be adults and everybody should take care of themselves. And first aid is more of a perfunctory element of being a guide. Oh, yeah, I went and got my first aid card, you know. But Julie, as an instructor with Knowles Wilderness Medicine, I did. I took the wilderness first responder class. I've now been current for 15 years. And the thing that I learned more than anything is... It takes so much time, energy, and resources to evacuate somebody out of the field that it really changes your mindset to be more proactive in every way. I would not take 90% of the risks that I took in my early 20s now, mostly because of my wilderness medicine training and understanding what the consequences are of being cavalier at you know the very least. So I, I agree with you. I, I'm very thankful for that training. I, I would really recommend anybody who spends any amount of time in the outdoors to seek out at least a wilderness first aid class. You know, spend that weekend. You'll learn so much. And it's not just about how to dress wounds and you know, administer first aid, but how to get into that mindset of, avoiding those situations to begin with, because sometimes that makes all the difference. For sure. Absolutely. I was just going to say, kind of to wrap it all up, that I remember Julie mentioning to me that you may have told her the story on your first date. Is that true? We weren't even dating at that. We worked together, but it was one of the first times I met him. We worked in a restaurant and we were washing dishes in the kitchen and it somehow came up and he told me, oh, yeah, I'll tell you about the story when I cut my finger skinning out a grizzly bear. And I didn't think I thought he was joking. <laughs> it was true. But then he launched into the whole story. And that was his preamble to asking you out. He thought, well, if I just if I lay down the foundation with the story, certainly she's not going to tell me down the yeah, he didn't yet know who he was talking to and that all I was thinking was, why did you that, that wound? But you also thought he was a little bit of a hunk because he did that, right? I <laughs> did. I must admit. Matt, thank you so much for sharing that story. That was really entertaining all around. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. I, like, like Julie said, it's more of a cautionary tale than a true survival story. But I can see how the, it, just a few variables being off just a little bit. And it's certainly, I mean... It could have been the story about the Alaska guide that died. Yeah, that's a way sadder story. Well, we're all glad it wasn't. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And thanks for tuning in to the Crux True Survival Stories. And until next time. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks. 